Go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Appreciate the opportunity to be here again. That's a very big responsibility to preach the, the Word of God to uh, anyone, and I take it seriously. So pray for me as I bring this message. Today's message is called Lost and Found, subtitled Repentance of a False Hope. Repentance of a False Hope. And Paul here is speaking to the Church of Philippi, and he's going to give sort of his past pedigree and resume and false religion and expose it as something that you don't want to hold on to. And um, really, this is a, a pattern chapter, I believe, that Paul teaches that uh, this is what repentance from false religion, a false hope, looks like. We're going to read verses 1 through somewhere around maybe 9, and then if we have time toward the end, we'll go back and uh, pick up some verses underneath there. Possibly, it just depends on how it goes. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. Indeed, is not grievous to me, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision party. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if any other thinks that he has a reason to trust in the flesh, I more. So of course he's talking about his past experience in, in his false hope. And this will be clear as we go along. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the uh, stock of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews. As regards the law, I was a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness in the law, blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. But no, rather, I also count all things to be lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them to be dung so that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but through the faith of Christ, the righteousness of God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Stop the reading there for now. As I said, we might pick up some more if we have time at the end. The first week I was born, I was in a church. I was in a Baptist church, a, a works righteousness, uh, for lack of a better term, a generic term, an Armenian Baptist church, free will. And uh, my parents were heavily involved. My dad was a, a youth leader, a choir director. My mom was a piano player. So needless to say, I was in that place a lot. Uh, growing up and uh, of course you go through Sunday school and you, you hear some bad teaching uh, from a bad church and um, You get to an age where you start thinking a little bit you start paying a little bit more attention to what they're teaching And then you start your conscience may get tender and you might start reacting and make a false profession or two or three uh, Sometimes you might lose count you know, the way that these churches do you, make you guilty, make you come down front where everything's holy. They have all the holy furniture where you, you do your thing up front, right? Did that several times. But, you know, over those years, you try to, by working, by obedience, by fulfilling conditions, even adding those little things to grace. They talk about grace. I mean, everybody talks about grace that calls themselves a Christian, even the Catholic Church. But those words have meanings, and those meanings are exposed in the doctrine and the gospel that they preach. So if, if the obedience of the conditions, if all this working didn't meet up to whatever standard you thought you were trying to fulfill, maybe 
you think, well, maybe I'll try something. Maybe it'll, it'll at least accept my sincerity. I mean, surely God will have pity on me and accept my sincerity for something, right? My intentions, my desires, my tears, even though I can't perform like the scripture tells me to perform perfectly, he'll at least accept that. I mean, that's kind of the general idea. God will accept your best. The attempts to make yourself holy and righteous. I mean, that's, that's mankind's automatic default position. Trying to establish a righteousness of our own. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. So finally, there was a time of, uh, through the providence of God, the means of the gospel finally came to me. And of course, uh, a person doesn't necessarily always, the very first time they hear the gospel, just latch on to it and believe it. God doesn't necessarily give faith the very first time you hear the gospel. So I would hear that gospel uh, back in the day. It was on cassette tape. I would drive to work, hear a message going to work, hear a message coming to work day in, day out for months, would wake up in my sleep, arguing and debating with myself concerning what I heard compared to what I used to hear. On break times, you know, you would take notes, you would read, you would study, you would listen. And um, not that I was attempting to study myself into heaven, but the Holy Spirit was pressing this message on me. And in the day of his power, on the way home from seminary at the time, which I was arguing with some people that were claiming to be sovereign grace, but they were compromising on the issue of the well-men offering common grace, as a matter of fact. And I knew that wasn't right. I wasn't even a believer. I could tell by reading the words in black and white on paper that that was wrong. But this, this thing of the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, which... Paul's talking about in this text that we're looking at was brought home to me in the day of his power and he gave me a new heart, changed my mind to understand the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace. And God immediately granted me repentance during that moment of giving me life. And the first thing I did and thought of that was weighing heavily on me was I put down my self-righteous weapons that were against the Lord Jesus Christ, that were competing with his work, his perfect finished work. And I saw these weapons that I had used in false religion, and I thought, these are useless. These are, these are not helping me. They're actually detrimental to what I see now. So God granted me repentance, a change of mind concerning what my hope was. Later on, I guess it was... Um, Eight months to a year later, I heard a man preach, this time in a good church, a gospel church. He preached on this very text. And he explained that this is what repentance from a false hope, a false gospel, a false assurance looks like. And he used that word repentance here. And I thought, I'd never heard it put that way, but that's exactly what God did for me at the time. I didn't need to know the terms or, you know, the technicalities of it. Just know that's what God, by his grace, had done. So since then, I've tried to listen and see who else is talking about this. And it's really hard to find anybody talking about this, about repentance from a false gospel. Because people like to bring their pedigree and their resume with them. It's fun for people. It tickles their flesh to be able to say, I've been a Christian for X amount of decades. And they can say, I did this, I did that, I started here. And a lot of times that resume is tainted with a false gospel. And so when I find people that see repentance from idolatry, self-righteousness, dead works, false hope, false gospel, I think that is a rare person. I want to fellowship with them. So the question today I want to pose to you, and you should Pose this to yourself quite often as you go about to make sure that your calling election is sure. And as you talk with other people, whether it be believers or those that you're witnessing to that claim to be a Christian, this idea of righteousness, and it's not 
often defined. The gospel is not often defined. And we know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16, because, verse 17, therein that gospel that's the power of God unto salvation, there's something revealed in it that's vital, that has to be revealed in it, that actually makes it the power of God unto salvation. It's the righteousness of God revealed. And we know that, just to cut right to the chase, that's the righteousness of Christ established and imputed to his people for justification. The means to talk about the scripture, talk about the gospel, has exploded through the internet. And you'll talk to so many people and they'll throw around words like gospel, grace, this, that, and the other, but they, they don't define anything. And then when they do, uh, it doesn't match what the word of God says. So these things are vital. Distinctions, definitions, and so on are vital to our spiritual health and our assurance so that we can not play guessing games. This is not mysticism. This is something we need to be sure and certain of. So the issue is, is righteousness. There is only one acceptable plea at the day of judgment, and you better have it now. Why do you think if you don't have it now, you're going to get it right at judgment? It needs to be correct now. You know, we hear uh, amongst as if there are different varieties of Christianity. That's kind of that's kind of sad even here. People think that way, like, okay, you can be this over here, and over here you can be, this is maybe the upper class, the Reformed, Calvinistic, Sovereign Grace variety. That's the cherry on top of all Christianity, right? As if there's different kinds. Well, amongst the Sovereign Grace, Calvinist, Reformed people, they are famous for saying Christ alone. And, you know, the, the further along I go, I want to say, yeah, we say that, but let's emphasize what that means and what it doesn't mean. I want to capitalize it, underline it, bolden it, highlight it. You know, I say that just humanly speaking. In other words, we want to we want to press that out and make sure, first of all, it's the right Christ. You know, somebody talks about Christ, say, which Christ are you talking about? Let's compare. Let's look at the scripture, which Christ, because I used to worship a Christ that's a false Christ. And I know plenty of other people that it, really anybody that heard about Christ and used that name before they were saved. It was a different Christ. They didn't believe in the true Christ of the scripture until he revealed himself to them. We thought that God was likened to ourselves because our minds were idolatry factories producing a God of our imagination. So these things have to be corrected. In other words, bottom line is we, we are brought to a point, and Paul is talking about this point where he was brought to, and we know in another text the story about him getting knocked off his horse and blinded and so on. He was brought to a point where, and, and everybody is, that's God's people, you come to a point where you realize that you were wrong about who God is, about who you were, and about who Christ is. And when God, by his grace, writes those wrongs, that's, that's a form of a change of mind. That's repentance from your false hope and your false views. That's not to downplay repentance from sins of immorality. Those are there. You know, repentance from that is in place. It's in the scripture, and it looks a whole lot different after you're converted than it looked like before you were converted because that was tied also to self-righteousness because the default position is, well, sin got me into this thing, obedience will get me out. So you got to do good to make up for the bad. I mean, that's, that's false religion. So even repentance from certain sins after conversion looks a lot different than it did in false religion has to do with the ground of forgiveness, your motive, and, and all these things. It, it totally is turned upside down after, uh, right side up, I should say, after God grants you grace and gives you faith and repentance. So this thing of Christ alone, uh, I, I don't think a lot of people make a distinction in which Christ, and I don't think they really mean alone when they say alone, because they brought a lot of stuff with them. Verse 1, we're just going to kind of make some comments as we go uh, through here. You know, this chapter and the, the text through here, I don't know anybody that's ever taught, and as they grow and learn, 
My problem is I've got so much to say, I, ha I have a problem of honing down and keeping it limited in time. Even on the drive up here, I was listening um, to Philippians chapters 1 through 3 several times, and I think I developed like four or five more messages in my head, and I thought, well, I got here and I put some more notes in here. That's my problem. The Word of God has some depth to it. It's, it has nothing to do with me being smart. It's overwhelming the richness of his grace and his truth. So when I initially said, pray for me, this is my problem. I want to say a thousand things at the same time. And I want to say the best thing I can to glorify God, you know, in his preeminent glory. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Notice two things. Rejoice. If we are paying attention too much to our circumstances, and we have anxiety. We know, we know that the one chapter there in the Gospels where Christ said, you know, you're worried about all these other things. You're worried about what to eat, what to put on. Look at the flower of the field. Look at the sparrows. God takes care of these things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things that you're worried about that you really shouldn't be worried about, God will take care of those. But don't forget, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's where we rejoice. We rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. And when that eclipses all of our circumstances, that's the true ground of joy to where we can rejoice. That's where God-given faith rests and is calm and has peace. No matter how wild it gets in our life, no matter how stressful, no matter how fearful, that's the, the ground of our, our joy is rejoice where in the Lord. Of course, you know, in the person of Christ and his work, the Gospel of John, the very last chapter, the very, very last verse, you don't have to turn there, but it says, you know, if, if everything was written about this Christ that could have been written, the world could not contain the books. Now, uh, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he, when he wrote that, he wasn't embellishing. He wasn't joking. I think we see the more that we get into the truth of the Word of God, we see it expand. and We see the depth of it. I believe that's literal. The world could not contain the books. Christ is, we could say he is remarkable. We can remark about him forever we're going to be dealing with him in glory and we're going to see that firsthand we're going to be sitting at his feet listening to things about him worshiping him forever and there'll be no limits to the world containing the books because in eternity it'll be even beyond that i mean i believe that's that's real so circumstances in this life are actually, that cause anxiety are actually, we need to just call them what they are. Anxiety is sin. It's doubt, unbelief. It's lack of trust in the absolute sovereignty of God and his providence in all things. It's sin. Worrying is sin. It is us trying to be sovereign in little individual circumstances. I see this in myself more and more and more. And it's the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. We know that God is absolutely sovereign in all things without exception. So, you know, you tell people that and they say, what about this? What I just like stop. Yeah, everything. Everything. So the true source of satisfaction and lasting joy for the believer is, is being in Christ and rejoicing in Christ. Not a career, as important as a career is. I mean, we're taught to be responsible. I mean, read the book of Proverbs. The fool is lazy and he doesn't have a work ethic. And um, he's going to end up starving if he doesn't work. The scripture says he ought not eat if he doesn't work. But, you know, so a career is important. Scheming and planning and, and wise. Planning and purposing in reference to stewardship is important, but a career 
should not eclipse everything else and especially the rejoicing in Christ to be your source of joy. You know, I've arrived, I've got this career, I've got all this money. So a career is not, you know, hobbies, people have hobbies that they just like turn into idolatry. And we have these tendencies if we don't, if we're not careful. Material things, all these things, even relationships can become idolatrous. But all these things that I mentioned, in and of themselves, they're fine, but they should be all looked at in light of the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits on the throne. If they're all funneled and filtered through him and the wisdom that he teaches us in the word of God, then things will be the way that they should. It goes on to say, to write the same things to you indeed is not grievous to me. It's not, not, not tedious. But for you, it's safe. So this is, a, this is really a common thing in Scripture, I think, that there's repetitive things going on. Several layers and aspects of many things about the truth have to be brought up, line upon line, precept upon precept, got to be reminded. This, this Christian walk is a, it's a training issue. Our minds are renewed by the truth of Scripture. So sound doctrine is laid out in teaching repetitively. It's reviewed for remembrance, and it has a tremendous benefit. Anybody that wants to talk about how that doctrine is not beneficial, uh, run from them because they're a mystic. You don't want to waste your time with them bogging you down in those lies. Fools hate knowledge and wisdom. And with, of course, knowledge, we need to get understanding. And the teaching of God's word, the doctrine therein, the explaining of it, and the growing in it, gives us a clearer view of who Christ is and what he did. So the continued, also the continued utilization of the gospel itself. Uh, I think in, in religion in general, there's this idea that you get your, um, I don't know, you get your ticket stamped and you're done. That's, of course, infused in this idea of, you know, Arminian evangelical um, altar call invitation system sinner's prayer thing. You do your thing up front, as I alluded to earlier, as I did as a youngster, and you're fine. And then you learn other things and you don't need the gospel anymore. The gospel they had was false anyway. But when we come to Christ by God-given faith, the means is the gospel. And if you read the scripture with this idea in mind, ask yourself the question, do we need the gospel anymore? You're going to see, you know, for example, Paul, and I quoted 16 and 17 long ago of chapter 1. In, in chapter 1 and verse 15, he said, He's talking to believers, saints. He says, I can't wait to come and preach the gospel to you again. Wait a minute. I thought you only needed that one time. No, you read the scripture throughout and the idea of the continued utilization, utility of the gospel, the use of it is vital in the Christian life. It's the foundation upon where everything else comes off of and filters through. I don't care what it is. And as far as teaching also, we teach about marriage. You better have a gospel foundation. You better be talking about Christ and his church when you're talking about marriage. Talk about any form of uh, commands or obedience. You better make sure that the gospel is clear because any kind of time of uh, service or obedience or, or whatever that is done any form of a work that is done after salvation, if it's not done with a gospel foundation, in other words, which is done in, by, and through faith. Let me just stop there a second. Faith. Let's say um, someone has a need, and I'm prompted to serve this one. What is my motive? Why am I serving? And what... What do I, how do I look at what I'm doing 
which a lot of people do too much of, by the way. God works in his people to the point a lot of times they, they shouldn't know what their right hand is doing from their left, you know. God works in his people both to will and do of his good pleasure. And so we step out to serve. And we do that by faith. Where's that faith directed? Is it faith, you know, I have faith in what I'm doing is right. That's not what it's talking about. I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has given me by his sovereign grace faith to trust in this Christ. That whether I do that or don't do that or how I do it, doesn't affect my salvation. I'm not doing this, this deed to get to heaven, and I'm not doing it to stay out of hell. That knocks the props out of all the false motives. Now I can freely serve. I mean, if we could just do that with everything, this Christian life would be so much easier. I love this person, therefore I'm serving this person. I'm not doing it to... Uh, because I feel guilty if I don't do it. I'm not doing it to get points. This is how we serve. And without knowing the gospel, being trained in the gospel, growing in the gospel, we're gonna, we would continue to fumble on those things and mess that all up. So in other words, after we initially are given faith to believe the gospel, we still need to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, using the same gospel as a means to do so. And that just constantly reminds us that we are ever dependent on God every second of the day. So, so part of the knowing the gospel and growing the gospel has to do with our safety. And that's what Paul said, for, you to, for me to go over these things, for you it's safe. And he's referring to the warnings about the false teachers in the next verse. Look at the next verse. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision party. Those that, who mutilate the flesh. Those three phrases there, dogs, evil workers, the concision party, those are talking about the same people, the very same people. It's not three different groups. These were people, um, they're identified as dogs, a lot of times those that would um, mess with the old covenant, the traditions, the works, all these different things uh, concerning the law and the old covenant that didn't believe the gospel would call uh, Gentiles dogs. That was the idea. They were, they were not a people. We know the, the mystery concerning that was from the beginning that the Gentiles would be brought in in this covenant transition. Nobody knew much about that. And then culturally when this came on the scene, there was this clash between Jews and Gentiles. And uh, even in believing churches, you had Jews and Gentiles. This thing was still not perfectly ironed out. And some of the Jews were trying to get the Gentiles to live like the Jews and embrace all those old covenant things that should have been left behind. You've got people saying, yeah, you got to eat this. you got to be circumcised. you got to keep these certain days. And uh, Paul made a big deal about it as he wrote the book of Galatians. And there's some other New Testament writings and warnings about that. So these are the ones that he's warning about. These that would creep into churches and try to impose things that are already done away with. And tell people if you do these things, yeah, Christ, yeah, you need Christ. But if you do these things, it'll put you on a more righteous or holy level. You can be holier if you do these things. Whether it be deeds, traditions, ceremonies, or whatever. So they were trying to actually teach these things using the same Bible that Paul was using. Whether it be uh, it was Old Testament, whether it be in the form of a, a scroll or little parchments or whatever. Same Bible. How are people supposed to know the difference? So they would try to convince these Gentiles to get with it. You know, you're not doing enough. 
and uh, we use guilt and fear and so on. So according to uh, Paul, when he wrote Timothy, he said this of those type people. You don't have to turn there. First Timothy 1.7 says, Desiring to be teachers of the law, neither understanding what they say, nor that which they affirm. They didn't know what they were talking about. They were using the law in an unlawful way. Verse 3 goes on to say, <clears throat> after he called them dogs and called them the concision party and evil workers, he said, writing to the saints at the church of Philippi, he said, for because we believers in this true Christ, we are the circumcision. In a minute here we're going to give... He, he's going to deal out three evidences of what it be, what it is to be the circumcision. If you want to turn, there's there's two spots that you don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Colossians two, ten and eleven. Um, and when I when I step off and go to a, another text that's related to what I want to talk about, this is when my temptation is to hang out here too long. We just finished the book of Colossians uh, a couple of weeks ago, very profitable time, and um, I learned a lot going through the book of Colossians, chapter two and verse ten. And you are complete in Him, Christ, referring to Christ, who referring to Christ again, who is the head of all principality and power, in whom, in Christ, also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, I did a whole message on this by itself, an hour long, so I'm not going to do that again, but a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about this, and have uh, turned this into a lot of things that it not be need turned into. Of course, we know Christ is a central focus here. We're complete in him. That means that's talking about Christ alone. When we say Christ alone, we're saying synonymously, we're complete in him. Nothing to add, nothing to take away. We're complete in him. His person, his work is perfect. When he said it's finished, the work was done. Right, And so in him, with his righteousness imputed to us, in him, we, we're, given all, we're given all spiritual blessings. We're given all that we need. And we delve into the treasures of Christ, the wisdom of Christ. And it's, as we said, it's a lifelong journey. And we, just, we can feed upon all that he has for us. And you know, we just continue to really see the same thing. That's kind of what Paul said, to say the same thing to you. It doesn't bother me. It's not tedious. And for you, it's safe. And we continue to see that. So we continue to see God higher. We continue to see us lower. And we can continue to see Christ as the remedy, all the more precious every single day that our minds are renewed. And when we see these words, we are complete in him, I would hope that if we live another year, we see them, they mean a little bit more to us. We can say, now I understand a little bit more. <laughs> Maybe after going through trials, tribulations, chastisements, or whatever. Yep, we're complete in him, because in my flesh dwells no good thing. But in him, absolute perfection. So because of the circumcision of Christ, and what I want to say here just briefly is, in Isaiah 53, it talks about that he was cut off from the land of the living. When I see this, the circumcision of Christ, I see the death of Christ. He was cut off for me. He was cut off for his people. We know that he was born under the law. He fulfilled the law. He did the circumcision thing on, on the day that he was supposed to. Paul referred to that in our text too. Didn't really mean much when Paul did it, but Christ did it for a, a purpose and it fit. But Christ was slain for his people. He was cast off out of the land of the living. 
something else about that. Go to Colossians chapter 2, and we'll see some similar language. In verse 19. You know, and we and we uh, have been made to see that when we have been brought to the true gospel, and we see the difference of the of the farce of, of the false gospel, the shallowness, it just has, it, it's just nothing to it. It's just, first of all, it's a lie. So there's nothing to it. And we see that there's no, there's no backing to it. There's no value to it. Well, here Paul uh, talks a little bit about the truth of the gospel here and, and the faithfulness of God involved in it and really the, the justice of God and not only the faithfulness of God to his people but the faithfulness of God to himself to his own character God does this in a way that it is just he doesn't cheat he honors his own name his character as he saves his people verse 19 of Galatians chapter 2 for through the law I died to the law now it doesn't just say I died to the law it says, through the law, I died to the law. And I, and I think I did a message just on this verse by itself, too. So, I'm, of course, I can't deal with uh, an hour's worth in this message. But he, he, he doesn't stop there. He goes on. He said, that I might live to God. This happens so that I might live to God. Again, I kind of bring us back to what I said earlier. It's not just like, well, I got my ticket punched and I'm done. God works in his people from day one to the end to glorify himself as they live by faith. For through the law I died to the law. The law was satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace, true grace, which the, there's only one kind, it's sovereign grace, comes from a sovereign God. The idea of grace is not no law. The idea of grace is law satisfied. That way, when that takes place and people see that, they have an understanding of it, they will hear what the law is saying. You know, Paul wrote that to the church of Galatia when he said, there's some trouble here, you know, and I'm not real happy about it. And, you know, I don't think you understand what the law is saying. You're tampering with the law. And you're flirting with it. Seems like you're doing it for a righteousness. I don't think you hear what the law says. Because the law demands absolute perfection all the time. And if you start right now and thinking you're doing it good, well, what about the past? You've already messed it up. This is the curse of the law that you cannot live under. So through the law, I died to the law. Christ, we know, was born under the law. He was made a curse for us, for his people. He took care of that curse. He didn't have the initial problem that we had where we, we're going to start putting our hands on the law, but what do we do about the past? Christ didn't have that problem. He came into the world, perfect God-man, sinless, perfect deity, sinless humanity. He didn't have to worry about trying to make up something he messed up for. He was impeccable. He went for that. Did it perfectly. Law honored, law obeyed, law satisfied. We can't do that. So we see what Christ did for us as a representative of the substitute, and we see now that through the law I died to the law. So we honor the law in that sense, and we see the we have a reverence for the lawgiver, and we see the law demands absolute perfection, and we say, This is the one that took that law and did something with it honorable that I could never do. So that I might live to God in my service to him and to others. So what else does it say here? Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I live. How did you survive a crucifixion, Paul? Well, in, in, in some other texts that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, it talks about how that the old man was killed. 
Paul's old man and, and anybody in here that's a believer formerly were, were identified with Adam. And now that they're believers, they're in Christ. So that old identity in Adam has been crucified. And now Paul says, I live. And he goes on to say, yet no longer I. See, he lost his identity. Not me, Paul, as a human being identifying in my flesh. But I have a new identity. Something that supersedes me and my reputation. Christ is my all. I'm complete in him. God has given me faith to invest in him and take my faith out of, which is repentance, from my former identity that I thought was so special. So I'm not even me anymore. I don't care about me anymore. God has caused me to see that Christ is all, my only hope. Yet no longer I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith toward the Son of God who loved me and gave himself on my behalf substitution. I don't set aside or frustrate the grace of God because if righteousness is through the law, then Christ died in vain or died wasting his time or without a cause. And we, I know that's not true because the central focus of the scripture is the death of Christ, the glory of the death of Christ. And I know he didn't die in vain. If I know he didn't die in vain, therefore we know that righteousness did not come by the law. Righteousness came through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord our righteousness who came to establish it by his doing and dying. So I'm constantly driven back to that. So back in our text, there are three things mentioned that show who this group is that he's, that he's writing to that he now calls along with himself. We are the circumcision. What do these people look like? How, how do they think? Well, here's one. Who, the circumcision, who worship God in spirit. There are people who worship God. They're done with worshiping their own self and their own glory. The Holy Spirit, whose main task is to testify of Christ, they worship God in spirit, so they're constantly seeing Christ. They're driven to the word of God. What do they see? Christ all over the place. The particular Christ of the gospel, not the false Christ they used to hold to. What else? And rejoice in Christ Jesus. This word rejoice here is the same word glory. As a matter of fact, I, we might go to it later. Probably my favorite verse. And whenever I write letters to people or type letters, I'll put Scott Price, Galatians 6.14. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word glory is the same word here, rejoice. Rejoice or glory in Christ Jesus. And what else? This has to come automatically with it and have no confidence in the flesh. You know, uh, when we say Christ alone, we mean alone. When we say no confidence in the flesh, we want to add other words like zero, nada. Don't think about it, you know. <laughs> Don't touch that. No confidence in the flesh. And, you know, we can be, our minds are drawn to, you know, Romans 7 is... Constantly, I think about that where Paul says, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Why would you want to have confidence in somewhere where in it dwells no good thing? It would be some form of a spiritual insanity. And that's what we were in before the truth came to us. There's therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh. This idea of the mind that would drive our minds back to anything that is in us, produced by us, that would merit anything. That's the mind of the flesh. But according to the spirit, that's the ones that there are therefore now no condemnation. This is not conditional. This is, this is now their new condition. Not a condition to get there. So in other words, those that are believers that have been justified and God has sanctified them and he's working in them, they've been made to not count on the things that they're doing and producing to be accepted. 
that old man's been crucified. And there's, there's even growing in that idea. They're seeing that clearer. And that's where assurance is built. If you want to go to Galatians 6, I kind of referred to that earlier. There's a few verses here that, even besides 14, I think are pretty important. It's related to our text. In verse 12, as uh, Galatians 6, 12, As many as desire to look well in the flesh, these compel see, these are the same people that Paul was warning against in verse 3. The dogs, the evil workers, the concision party. As many as desire to look well in the flesh, these compel you to be circumcised only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. We know generally this idea about persecution and the offense of the cross. If you preach the gospel in its clarity, it's, it's called the offense of the cross, which is the very glory of God. This is the thing we should be pressing all the time. If we compromise, what are we doing? We're shaving off the, the rough edges of the offense of the cross. It's the most wicked thing a speaker, a preacher, a teacher can do. So if you don't want to be persecuted, tame that down a little bit and add some things into it, like certain other commandments of men. Or even the very law of God, if you talk about it for righteousness. For they themselves, verse 13, having been circumcised, do not even keep the law. I mean, we could just stop right there and say, well, to the Galatians, why even listen to them? They're telling you to, to do something, and they're not even keeping the law. Why even listen to them? But they desire you to be circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. God forbid that I should boast against, same word rejoice in our, in our text, except in one place. There's only one place that I'm going to boast, Paul says, is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision has any strength, nor uncircumcision. In other words, it doesn't matter either way. I don't know why you're getting caught up in this. It doesn't even matter. But what avails or what has strength but a new creation? And as many as walk according to this rule, this principle, what is, what is this rule that he's talking about that we are to walk by? Verse 14, that we should only and always glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what God's people do. Because they have no confidence in the flesh. There's only one place to glory. It's in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we glory in. The, and that's what the new creature does. That's what the new creation does. As many as walk according to this rule. What's, what's going to be upon them? Peace and mercy be upon them. Upon the Israel of God. This is the true Israel of God. The new creation. The remnant of the Jews and the remnant of the Gentiles brought together. One new man, Ephesians chapter 2. This is the Israel of God. This is the spiritual seed of Abraham. Back in our text, this, uh, I'm not going to get very far, but Paul says in verse 4, he says, uh, if we're going to do comparisons, really, I did really good in false religion. I, I speak as a man, you know, that idea. And he says, um, I've seen some of these other people try to perform. They didn't come close. I blew them away in false religion. In the things that I did, you can't keep up. You can't top what I did. And he's saying that only to toss it all out, right? He, he goes through his resume uh, about his circumcision, about his, the stock of the tribe that he was in. Uh, as the regards of the law, he was a Pharisee, he was the top, you know, probably had a bunch of letters behind his name of whatever schools he went to concerning the law, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He wasn't playing. I mean, he was a go-getter and uh, he was sincere, zealous, fervent. Regarding the righteousness in the law, blameless. I just want to stop here just a second. Now, this is what he thought when he was in this, when he was not a believer. 
he's writing this as a believer, but he's referring back to when he wasn't a believer. And he's given an idea to people about what he was thinking about himself and actually what other people around his, his peers were thinking about him. They thought, man, that Paul, man, he is like, I'd like to be like Paul because when I see him take the law and do stuff with it, man, I wish I could do that. These people looking at him may have been uh, trying to learn from him, maybe trying to emulate him, maybe even saw Paul do certain deeds as Paul thought he was doing something with the law and, and, and might even be like how they are in like charismatic churches today. You know, hear somebody make a statement and just like, man, I got chills. I'm so inspired by that, you know. And that, I imagine that kind of thing went on with Paul doing what he did. Paul said nobody could point the finger at me outwardly as far as the letter of the law is concerned. I mean, I did pretty good. Uh, he said blameless. And we know Paul was deceived. We know he did some things. Maybe people didn't see him. So here Paul wasn't even talking about the heart. We know sin starts in the heart. You know, anything that's like bad that comes out the mouth comes from the heart, right? We know Eve, as she reached out to grab that fruit, it was in her heart first. On and on and on. We know that a person that commits physical adultery, that's one thing. That's the letter of the law. But Christ said, if you look upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Same with hate. Going on and on. Covetousness. All these things start in the heart. Paul's heart was wicked when he said he, when he thought he was doing things in a blameless state. And the opposite of that, when Christ came and obeyed the law, Christ didn't, in the covenant before time, say, you know, Father, we can, we can fake these stupid humans out. I'm just going to roll out and we're gonna, I'm going to obey the law by the letter. Nobody's going to know any difference anyway because they can't see my heart. No, Christ, out of his love for the Father and for his people, as a sacrifice to the Father for his people, his lifelong obedience of, of obeying every precept was not only done to the letter, but it was done with the right motive. It was done in love. It was done perfectly. Everything about it, his will, just a, a crazy contrast of opposites, way, way, way other than what we have attempted to do and failed in our attempts. Paul said in the next verse, verse 7, but whatever things were, notice the word were, past tense, were gained to me. And, and those things he had just listed, his resume, his religious resume, that he thought was recommending him to God in times past for some part of his justification. Those things that were, so he's already starting to use repentance language. My mind's been changed. Those were gained to me. And he says, those things I counted, past tense, I counted loss. What for? Just to say I lost them? For Christ. This is the object of faith, Christ. These things that I was looking at, that I thought were good, now I've, I've passed from death unto life, and they're not just neutral, they're wicked, and I'm going to lose them. And he goes on to, to go and drill down on that too, but, but no, rather I count all things. You know, the things he listed and everything in between. That would, that would seek to compete with the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ and the accomplished redemption that he performed. Counted all those things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but dung. D-U-N-G, that is excrement, crap, it's what we flush down the toilet. That's what they're counted as. We could add Isaiah's filthy rags idea, which is menstrual rags. These are two things that are not necessarily pleasant. And he says that I've counted them in that category now, which is pretty extreme, where they were precious before, now there's something you're going to flush. 
Why? So that I may win Christ. It's repentance and faith. And what about this Christ? Verse 9, being found in him, not having my own righteousness. He realizes now that even back when he talked about the righteousness which was in the law, blameless, he even realizes now that back then he didn't even have that to begin with. And this would be considered, he uses the word own, which refers to personal. Paul is saying, we in the flesh, separate from Christ, we don't have a personal righteousness. We read in Romans chapter 3, you guys went over it recently uh, here at this church, that there is none righteous. By nature, as we come into, uh, by birth and by practice, there is none righteous. We come into the world actually legally not righteous. We come into the world condemned with Adam's sin imputed. And then the practice is just unrighteousness all over the place. So there's none righteous. There's not such thing as a personal righteousness. Christ is the only righteous one. That's where we get our righteousness that we now have and that we glory in because he performed it, he gave it to us, he merited it, we have it now, and that's the Lord. Our righteousness is our only hope. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, proof positive that that's what he was using the law for, for righteousness. But through counter idea, through the faith of Christ, the righteousness of God by faith. He uses this phrase, and let's go real quick to uh, uh, Romans 10. This is pretty important. I had mentioned that, as you're turning there, I'll say this. I had mentioned that in um, Romans 1, 16 and 17, talks about the gospel, that's the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes. Verse 17 says, for in there, there in that gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. In verse 9 of our text, it says the righteousness of God by faith. So the righteousness of Christ, as he came and obeyed, and he merited that righteousness, established that righteousness, is now a righteousness that we can have that God gives us, his people, because Christ merited it for his people, and they get it by the means of a legal charging to their account, an imputation to their account, a legal transfer to their account. This is the righteousness of God by faith that matches the standard of his character attribute of righteousness so that he can be just when he justifies because that righteousness Christ merited and gave to us, it has, it has value, it has backing the very obedience of Christ. And that righteousness, there's a sense in which now that that righteousness where it's presented, it demands our justification. Not that God reluctantly says, oh, you mean I got to justify you? No, he gladly does it. It was his purpose and his plan. Verse uh, 1 of uh, Romans 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel that they be saved. So he's talking about those that he grew up with and was in religion with. He's saying they're lost, the ones that don't believe the gospel. He said, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Well, they're, they're ignorant of something, right? Verse 3, because they being ignorant of what? God's righteousness. This is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 17. They're ignorant of God's righteousness. So when that happens, there's a default position that automatically takes place. What is it right here? They're going about to establish their own righteousness. Paul just said, I don't want to have my own righteousness, which is of the law. But that's what they do. They're going about to establish their own. And, and what's this say here? Some more language that shows their rebellion. Have not submitted themselves. You know what? They can't, first of all. Because by nature, they're self-righteous on the treadmill. And they think because their conscience is bugging them, i got to do something because I've messed up. I think I can make this up by doing something good. It's a trap. It's a satanic trap. They've not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. In other words, there's no gospel repentance. Ignorant of, not submitted to. 
two things that shows total depravity in reference to the righteousness of God in coming to the Lord for salvation. There's none that seeketh after God. How can they? They've got to overcome this hurdle. And the only way that that can be overcome is God's free and sovereign grace, presenting the gospel, granting them repentance so that they can. Until then, all they're going to do is try to establish a righteousness of their own by the law. And verse 4 says, For because Christ is the end of the law, period? No, for righteousness for everyone that believes. Paul goes on in uh, the text in verse 10. He says, That I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Uh, I think I had brought this up another time. I was here about something that I just kind of passed over in years past in Ephesians chapter 1. I think it's around verse 12 to 15, some there. Um, how that when God gives faith to his people and he works it in them, because it's not an offer, he works it in them, that the power that is exercised in them to believe is the same power that it took to raise Christ from the dead. So that if we know him, we know him in the power of his resurrection. Not only that, I mean, we know what the resurrection is all about. We see the success of his work, and we know that he was raised, and it showed that the Father accepted that sacrifice, vindicated the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and exalted him higher than any other place could ever be. He could be brought to in this world or any world to come, as far as the ages are concerned. Verse 13 of our text, uh, my brothers, I do count myself to have taken possession, but one thing I do, forgetting the things behind, there's some more repentance language. Those things that I counted on before that actually I'm ashamed of now, forgetting about them. I'm not counting them for anything. I've repented of them. Reaching forward to the things before. Jump down to verse 17. Brothers, be imitators together of me and mark those who walk this way. For you, have us for a pattern. Paul said this idea, and I think it was in Timothy also. He talked about how that he was a pattern. It's referring to faith and repentance. Now, of course, here Paul was, you know, messing around in Judaism in times past or with the old covenant and so on. And some people say, well, how, Scott, how can you apply what's going on in the 21st century with comparing it to Paul? There's no difference. Conditional salvation. Grace plus works, works righteousness. Same idea. It's all glory in the flesh. It's the same stuff. It's Satan's lie. It has never changed. It's always the same. So Paul's a pattern. And he's showing here that God gives repentance to all his people to flush all their own righteousness. Verse 18. I'm only two more verses and we are done. For as many as are walking, of whom I have told you often now, telling you, weeping with tears, that these people that are, that are opposing this message, the ones that I call dogs, evil workers, and um, this concision party, he says, they're just not in air. They're not just like, just kind of avoid them, you just kind of dismiss them, don't just try to, don't fight with them. He said they're enemies of the cross. The very thing that Paul said, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. These people are enemies of what I glory in and what brings glory to the Lord Jesus Christ more than any other thing that it can, can be conceived. The glory of God in the death of Christ. These are the worst enemies on the face of the earth concerning any form of sin because it's an attack on God's chief glory. It goes on to say whose end is their destruction, whose God is their bellies. And notice this, in reference to their religion, whose glory, same word, is in their shame. A false gospel is a shame. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. for its So that refers to all other gospels are a shame. Right? Who mind earthly things? You know, in reference to... What they do religiously, they can see. They use this empirical evidence of, of all their senses. 
And, um, and that's what the guy did in Matthew 7 when he stood up in front of judgment. He said, but Lord, Lord, didn't I? That's earthy. That's earthly minded. That's not heavenly minded. Me, 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 do, do, do. The same kind of do, do, do that Paul said to flush, right? I finally worked that little joke in there. I remembered to do it. So I hope some of these things were edifying. I just apologize for going too long. and um, But it's been good to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Pray that these things were edifying to you and would cause you to worship. Appreciate you all. Thanks.